Blog Talk Radio. Today on the A.J. Bruno Show, we'll be talking about the Texas Revolution and American Civil War with William C. Davis, one of the most renowned modern historians specializing in both subjects. Hello, sir, and thanks for being with us. Hello? Hello. Hi, good to talk to you. Hi, good morning. This is William Davis. Good morning. Great. So I want to start with uh, your background. Now, can you tell us more about it and, and what was it that drove your interest in the areas of history that you've written so many books about? Uh, it probably began in, in childhood. I was born in Independence, Missouri, which is right outside Kansas City. And as is pretty common with people out there, I had ancestors on both sides in the Civil War because Missouri was a, was a very divided state. So it was still kind of a, a lively topic at times at the uh, family gatherings. And I think that early on probably sparked an interest. And then, of course, uh, I, went, I was going through the junior high and high school years during the Civil War centennial in the early 60s. So there was a fair bit of attention to it. And uh, had the good fortune to have a family who really encouraged an interest in history. So they, if we traveled, they'd always stop by battlefields or historic sites. And uh, but I had a lot of reinforcement uh, from the family. Sure. So before we get to the Civil War, I want to touch on the, the Texas Revolution, another area which you've <clears throat> written about. Um, so Andrew Jackson badly wanted Texas to become American territory but knew the only way he'd get away with it is if Texas won its independence first. How was it that despite being greatly outnumbered against the Mexican army, the Texians were able to achieve victory in just over six months? Uh, largely because of distance. Um, you know, the Texans were, were uh, rebelling and fighting on what to them was home ground, whereas uh, the, the Mexican army had to maintain itself uh, almost 1,000 miles from Mexico City. The communications were very slow. It was a long and difficult uh, trek to get across uh, northern Mexico into the, the province of Texas. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Supply lines for food, ammunition, everything else were uh, greatly attenuated, which created a hardship in and of itself. And then, as it happened, uh, uh, Santa Ana simply proved not to be a very good uh, battlefield general. He uh, He allowed his army to get strung out and uh, therefore weakened at uh, just the right time for the uh, Texians to turn around and strike. So mm-hmm. they, they had a lot of luck on their hands, and they had kind of had Santa Ana's ineptitude as a general working for them. Hmm. When I look at the numbers in that war, too, I feel like Santa Ana had a relatively small army with him, considering he had all of Mexico at his command. What was the reason for not bringing more force to bear on the, on the Texans? Uh, partly disdain. Santana made the mistake of uh, uh, disdaining, looking down on, dismissing his opponents, which is is always dangerous. Um, so it was overconfidence, <clears throat> and also his army were largely conscripts. They were they were draftees, and at the same time he also had some unrest in other provinces of Mexico that required troops uh, there as well. So it was. Uh, he, he still took what should have been an adequate force with him. I've forgotten now the exact number, but he had in the neighborhood of, of I think, about 1,500 
a man or more with him, for instance, uh, at the Alamo, and in the army that then pursued uh, Sam Houston to San Jacinto, which should have been enough if he managed to keep them all together uh, so that they could work as a unit, and that he failed to do. Mm-hmm. Well, this war is probably unique in that most of the taxi and deaths are from tactics that amount to war crimes. So what is your take on Santa Ana's particularly barbaric tactics at the Alamo, where he ordered that no prisoners should be taken, and at Goliad, where hundreds more were executed? Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I, he certainly he would be brought before a war crimes commission. In that era, that sort of treatment was not uncommon when dealing with insurgents and revolutionaries. Uh, it would not have been common in the Anglo culture of the time. England and uh, the United States would not have behaved that way. But there are other nations that uh, that still would have dealt with with um, with rebels in that sort of fashion, not just as a punishment, but as an admonition to other people not to uh, you know, not to attempt to rise up in rebellion. Uh, that that said, uh, what Santa Ana did even. Uh, disgusted some of his own officers, uh, particularly since a lot of his Texians who were uh, who were killed uh, were people who had been encouraged to come to Texas to settle it, which was to Mexico's benefit. And they recognized that uh, that uh, this sort of thing is going to be counterproductive. That the more they the more they massacre or the more they execute, the more it's going to bring out of the hinterlands to rise up in rebellion. You see the same dynamic in effect today, really, when you know, in, in our um, in our efforts in the Near East, that uh, the death of one terrorist seems to bring two more out. No, that makes sense. So before we pivot to the Civil War, um, for me, I've always been a huge fan of Davy Crockett because I felt he was really a unique person who always stood up for what he believed in and had a tremendous amount of courage. Is there a figure from the revolution that most stands out to you for any particular reason? Um, well, there are a number of them. Uh, Crockett certainly would be one, though he is essentially a minor figure in the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think William Barrett Travis is is perhaps the most interesting to me because he, uh, he'd been a failure as a young man in Alabama. He he went bankrupt. He ran out of town in the night to escape debts. He left behind a pregnant wife whom he abandoned. He's he's not a fellow that anybody would be very proud of at the time he left Alabama. But in Texas, he found an opportunity to grow up and to mature and very quickly became responsible, started taking care of his debts and other issues back in Alabama, and then became a a local leader and eventually something of a national leader in the growing political movement that led to the revolution. Had he not died at the Alamo, I suspect Travis uh, one day would have wound up uh, being governor of the Republic of Texas. And and he had a lot to do, I think, with inspiring others who were other professional men. Travis was a lawyer to to, uh, uh, take part in the revolution, and of course, like all of the people who fell at the Alamo, his his, his example of his uh, uh, martyrdom, for want of a better word, uh, helped to, to infuse uh, spirit and a desire for revenge that I think brought a number, a lot of other people into association with the revolution. 
because it needs to be remembered there are a lot of Anglos in Texas who want, want no part of the revolution. Sure. Now that's a great example. So moving on to the Civil War, uh, the Confederacy sort of gave the North an excuse for war by opening fire on Fort Sumter. Had they just left it as it was, do you think they could have been independent without triggering a war, or what might have happened in that case? Well, the, you know, the, the what have been, what might have been, are endless. Um, it is, it's my opinion that there was never a time when the Confederacy could do something unilaterally to win its independence. It was never going to defeat the North militarily. Its best chance probably was not to start the war by firing on Fort Sumter, but rather to go through the courts. Uh, you had a I think it was a 4-2 or a 4-7 majority of Southern or conservative men on the Supreme Court. Uh, if one of the Southern states or several of them together had created um, a, a case in favor of the right to secede that would make it through the, the lower appellate courts, there's a very good chance, I think, that the Supreme Court would have found in their favor, especially the court as it was at that time ruled by Roger B. Taney, who was a conservative slaveholder from uh, Maryland. Uh, mm. But that would have taken a long time. And the and people in the South, or, or let's say Southern leaders, were in a panic with the election of Abraham Lincoln because even if his term was only four years in office, they feared that he could do a lot in four years to... Uh, to essentially to relegate the South, the slave states, to permanent minority status, which mm-hmm. um, would be disastrous for them, they feared, because sooner or later, if there's a if there's a big enough majority in Congress, then Congress could take action via constitutional amendment to abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. So when the war did start, given the massive deficiency in industrial and manpower the Confederacy had. Do you, th- do you think they had to find a way to take Washington by force early on to, in order to, to force a peace, or was there any other path to victory? Uh, that's a, well, another what if, of course. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not often that you'll hear a historian say, I don't know. But there's a whole yeah. lot I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. One thing we don't know for a start is what if the Confederates had taken Washington in 1864, it would have made no difference because the North was fully committed to continuing the war to a successful collusion, uh, conclusion. They proved that when they overwhelmingly voted for Abraham Lincoln for re-election. What the sentiment would have been in 1861 in the northern states had the national capital been lost, I don't, I don't know. My guess is it would have been the same. And it's worth remembering that when you have these, when you have a Confederate raids into the North, the raid in 1862 that culminated in the Battle of Antietam, and of course the famous raid in 1863 that culminated in the Battle of Gettysburg. These were just raids. These were not invasions of conquest. Lee's army never had any intention of staying there and holding territory. It was just to go up, fight a battle on northern soil to try to influence northern public opinion. And really, the Confederates, I think, would not have been at all able to hold on to Washington had they taken it in 1861. And it's worth remembering, because uh, President Jefferson Davis got a lot of criticism at the time for not 
following up the, the victory at the first Battle of Bull Run and going on into Washington, it's worth remembering that the Confederate Army was just as badly battered and disorganized as the Union Army was. And mm-hmm. it's highly unlikely they could have gotten close to Washington had they tried to, you know, to go on sure. and take the Union capital. Well, on the subject of uh, President Davis, I had always thought the conventional wisdom was the South typically had superior generals to the North, but you take the view that Jefferson Davis was a strong leader who didn't have a lot of great generals to rely on. Uh, why do you take that stance, and who were some of the most competent commanders the Confederacy had in your view? Well, this is a for long has long been a, a commonly held view that the South had all the best generals. But that's that's a viewpoint that was created as part of the lost cause myth that was created in the 1860s and 70s uh, by ex-Confederates. Um, so it's really them patting themselves on the back. And what you're really talking about is people like Lee, uh, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and a few others. But that is just a few others. When you look across the board at the Confederate Army commanders, Lee is the only one who is truly what Confederacy needed. Uh, most of the others were were more concerned about their reputations than they were about winning. They spent their time in constant infighting with each other over clout and position and rank. Uh, they're a pretty sad bunch for the most part. I think it, it uh, is eloquent that the second most aggressive Confederate Army commander after Lee was General Braxton Bragg, who was even Confederates have abandoned long ago as sort of the bad boy of Confederate history. He was just a hopeless battlefield commander. But he actually did think offensively and launched more offensives than anybody else except Lee. He just couldn't manage them. Mm-hmm. Davis, I think, fully came to realize that Lee was his only true top-notch Army commander. I think that's one of the reasons that Davis left Lee alone. He did not interfere with him. He did everything he could to support Lee, to give him what he asked for, at the same time that Davis was frequently having to manage or even micromanage some of his other Army commanders and other theaters of the war because they weren't doing anything. So he was almost, in a way, doing their job for them. So the Eastern and Western theater were fought in significantly different ways. What were the major distinctions in how the war was approached on both fronts? Well, in the, in the East, of course, the war comes down to Virginia, northern Virginia, essentially, and to that 100-mile sector between Washington and Richmond, the two national capitals. And the goals were in that region were for the Confederates to protect Richmond, to keep the Federals out to, out, to hold on to as much of Virginia as they could, and for the Federals, until U.S. Grant took over in 1864, the objective had always been to capture Lee, the, uh, uh, Richmond, the thinking being that if Richmond fell, the Confederacy would, would, would fall along with it. Uh, west of the Appalachians, where there's this enormous territory, there's probably 80 times more territory being fought over out there than there was in Virginia. And out there, what people at the time and people since have tended to overlook is the fact that the Union started winning the war out there in late 1861 and never stopped. Every month the Union took more territory away from the Confederates. Out there it became a question of 
of command of the rivers, the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Cumberland and the Tennessee rivers, which the Union was able to use as, inva- as, as avenues of invasion thanks to uh, the use of gunboats to, try to take men and guns deep into the Confederate heartland. And it was a story out there of Confederate inability, in part because of second- and third-rate Army commanders, to prevent those, those Union invasions. So it's two dramatically different kinds of wars being fought. In the East, in Virginia, it's for the Confederates, it's a war of status quo. And if uh, some people only half in jest maintain that if the war had been confined to Virginia, it would still be going on today because the Confederates were never strong enough to completely defeat the Union, but the Union forces were never completely well-led enough to defeat Lee until finally Grant showed up. Hmm. And out west, it's, it's a very different story. Sure. So the conventional wisdom that I've always heard of the Confederacy was winning the war in 61 and 62, um, but then the tide started to really shift. Do you think it was when New Orleans was taken, or was it being stopped in Antietam a few months later? Uh, you'll get a lot of arguments over just about every battle of the first two or three years of the war as to which was the turning point. I think uh, I would probably argue that the fall of Fort Donelson in February of 1862 is really what did it. Uh, the war is won out in that Western theater. The fall of Fort Donelson opened up the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers to Union forces to go up and take Nashville and then head toward Chattanooga and eventually on toward Atlanta. That all was the offshoot of the fall of Fort Donelson. And secondly, Fort Donelson made U.S. Grant a hero. And it put him on the track to becoming the overall Union commander. And he is the most brilliant Union commander of the war, and he's really probably a better general than anybody the Confederates had except maybe Lee. Uh, If Grant hadn't gotten the opportunity, if he had failed at Fort Donelson, uh, the war might have been very different. The the Battle of Antietam is not, I don't think, militarily that significant. It's really a a Confederate victory in a way because Lee had gotten himself into such a horrible position with his back against the Potomac River uh, facing a considerably numerically superior Union army that the fact that Lee got out of there without losing his whole army, I think, makes it a victory for him even though he did have to retreat to Virginia. But that's what he always intended to do. Uh, Antietam is usually posed as a turning point because it, uh, word of it when it got to England, signaled that the North was not beaten after all and that the uh, uh, British cabinet decided not to try to interfere in the war in order to bring about a um, an armistice, which might eventually have led to... Um, the Confederate uh, victory and independence. Uh, That completely misreads what the British were thinking of doing. They were just considering offering to arbitrate between the two sides, but that, you know, we we know from just watching the negotiations between President Trump and North Korean President Kim that just talking about the shape of the table you're going to meet at can take months and months and months if diplomats (laughs) want to delay a... a, um, an actual meeting. So I, I think Antietam internationally was nowhere near as uh, significant as believed. It did, of course, give Lee, uh, Lincoln 
the, the pretext he much needed to have a victory of sorts in order to go ahead and issue the emancip- preliminary emancipation proclamation. So mm-hmm. it certainly had, uh, it had a, a cultural and emotional and a historical importance for that. I always thought if they had won an overwhelming victory at Antietam that maybe they could have moved on Washington. But again, you said before that might have not even made a difference. I just thought that well, maybe yeah. that could have been a strict yeah. Lee's army was badly battered mm-hmm. at the end of that battle. And uh, his, he was away from his supply line. Uh, part of his army, of course, had been off at, at Harper's Ferry until the last few hours of the Battle of Antietam. Lee was very lucky to get out of there. And uh, his, his army simply was in no condition to do anything else except try to get back to Virginia. It's mm-hmm. to Lee's credit. It shows the, the metal of the man that both at Antietam and again at Gettysburg, after he's been severely beaten, he then would stay on the battlefield an additional day daring the Federals to come at him again. Uh, This is a man who had considerable uh, resources of fortitude and determination. He he, he never turned and and ran in a panic. And he he, he could always hope that something might happen that would allow him to renew the offensive. In those cases, uh, of course, it didn't. He's always been one of the generals I, I most admire, but there's some historians that are really critical of him. Uh, what do you tend to think of their perspective, those who don't have a favorable view? Well, there's you know, there's a lot of iconoclasm going around, but that's always been the case. There are some people who, who've written books on what a horrible general U.S. Grant was. Uh, there's been, in the recent years, there have been a couple of books on how inept Lee really was, and he should have done something else. It's always easy 150 years later to sit down and write a book on what some commander should have done in order to to change history, but that's, you know, it's really kind of a pointless exercise. Hmm. Um, I think, as I've said before, I think Lee is, is easily the best general the Confederacy had. Uh, I really don't, I really try to avoid comparing Lee and Grant uh, to, try to try to say which is the better each was outstanding at at what he did, um, in part because they had a great deal in common, though they're very different men on the, on the surface. But I, I cannot think of any other Confederate commander who could have helped keep the Confederacy alive as long as it lived, but for Lee. And indeed, if you, when you read the letters of Confederate civilians, you read the letters of Confederate soldiers, You read what's appearing in the newspaper press in the Confederacy. By 1864, the people identify the cause with Lee, even if they're in Texas or Mississippi. Lee is the man they're fighting for, not Jefferson Davis. Um, It's truly a a focus of the whole ethos of the potential Confederacy fixed in this one man. And there's no other general who I think had either the ability or the popular appeal to be a sort of spiritual leader of the people that Lee had. He had he had more power at the end of the war and immediately after the war than any man in the South, had he chosen to use it. Well, General Lee, of course, valued uh, Stonewall Jackson probably above all other officers, um, but after Chancellorsville in 1863, he was gravely injured. Um, he was said to remark that he has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right arm. When General uh, Jackson died, do you feel this was as huge a blow to the Confederate cause as Lee believes? 
Well, I think you know, Lee spends the rest of the war trying to find another Jackson, and of course there isn't one. Um, you know, maybe Jubal Early certainly was not going to be another Stonewall Jackson. Uh, A.P. Hill was not. Maybe toward the end, uh, Major General John B. Gordon, who wound up commanding the old Second Corps, might have been, but the war ended too soon. Um, you know, but Jackson, again, it's a measure of Lee's maturity as a commander that he was able to deal with Jackson, who was, at, was an eccentric nut job. Uh, <laughs> a difficult, difficult man to deal with, both for his superiors and his subordinates. Um, he's arguably a religious fanatic. He uh, sees everything in extreme black and white. At one point early in the war, his he proposes they should invade the North and kill indiscriminately men, women, children, white and black, to persuade uh, the, the Yankees that they are uh, they are resisting the will of God. I mean, Jackson's a pretty strange guy, but he has uh, the degree of determination and internal fortitude and imagination to deliver these stunning victories in um, the Shenandoah Valley. And, of course, the uh, the great flank march at Chancellorsville, which was Lee's idea, though Jackson's always gotten the credit for it, but it was Lee's idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, was, there, there wasn't another Jackson, and that's perhaps a plus and a negative because Jackson won some great victories. He made, he made some huge mistakes as well. Sure. So Gettysburg is probably the battle which people most often – Remember when asked to name one, um, and it's also, you know, named as a major turning point, whether that's uh, true or not. Um, how do you feel about the perceived paramount importance that it had, and um, do you think that's as critical a moment as, as people tend to make it out today? Well, it's I, I don't regard it as a turning point. Certainly not in the military course of the war. By that by that point, you know, the Union is just kicking the hell out of the Confederacy everywhere west of the Appalachians. Um, and despite the recent defeat at Chancellorsville, the Union Army is growing and gaining more confidence in the East. The real, in my opinion, the decisive thing about Gettysburg is that Lee's army was never the same again. It, Gettysburg shattered his command system. He lost so many of his experienced uh, division, brigade, regimental commanders there, that the Army of Northern Virginia was never again the fighting force that it was uh, at, at Gettysburg. And of course it does well in some subsequent battles, but it just doesn't, it wasn't the oiled machine that it had been before it. Lee himself would complain he just couldn't get his young generals to do what he wanted them to do. Um, <clears throat> and it's the last time Lee will be able to take the offensive. Uh, Emotionally, it shocked the North, which is what Lee was hoping to do. But by that time, we, we can see that the North was resilient enough to bounce back from the shock, without uh, saying, "Oh, you know, throwing up their hands and say, okay, we, you know, we we quit, you win." Uh, mm-hmm. And it gave the Army of the Potomac confidence that it could win a major battle, and that's its first unequivocal victory in the field. Uh, Antietam, I think, is a very equivocal victory for the North. As I said before, Lee really won it by not being obliterated. Right. The the tactical mistake, of course, that people most remember from that uh, was 
the infamous the infamous Pickett's charge. Uh, right. What what do you think went through his mind that he could break their center by crossing all that open field? Because in retrospect, it just seems like it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, every great general has a bad day. Uh, Napoleon had bad days. Eisenhower had bad days. And Lee had bad days. Uh, July 3rd was probably his worst. He should have known by then that the advent of the rifled bullet had pretty much made the frontal assault with a bayonet a thing of the past. He had tried it at Malvern Hill, and it didn't work in 1862, and he, he suffered considerable losses. And, of course, he tries it again on, on July 3rd, 1863. Grant is slow to learn that lesson. He'll try it in 1864 at Cold Harbor. But mm-hmm. I, first of all, it's, I think it's important to remember that Lee was in wretched health at that point. He was suffering a severe angina, he was suffering from almost chronic uh, dysentery, diarrhea, essentially. Um, he felt well. He wasn't thinking well. Lee himself, by 1863, starts to complain in private letters that his mind isn't working the way it used to. He, his vision is not good. He'd had two frustrating days in which he'd made serious attempts at either flank of the Union Army and had failed, and he had only enough am- artillery ammunition for one more effort, really. And I think mm-hmm. it was partly an act of desperation and partly a, a hope that somehow or other uh, his opponent would be would have weakened the center in order to, to resist these two flank attacks. And mm-hmm. it's worth keeping in mind that had the Longstreet's assault or Pickett's charge, in the unlikely event it had succeeded and split the Union Army in half, Lee would be hailed as the most imaginative and daring commander of all time. That's not what's going through his head. I'm just saying it's it's easy no. to post-judge after the fact because it failed. Right. So from 1864 onward, as General Grant began to wage a war of attrition and a total war against the South, what was the mindset like from a typical Confederate point of view in this type of warfare that hadn't been pressed on them to the level of intensity before that? Well, for a start, uh, Grant really does not conduct a campaign of attrition. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look at um, Norris Norris Grant, this awful butcher who's just wasting his own men's lives, if you look at the Overland campaign in 1864 from the beginning at the wilderness until the time Lee's army's bottled up at Petersburg, his army suffers 60,000 casualties, and it it is badly beat up and exhausted. But in the previous three years, the Union Army had suffered over 100,000 casualties and achieved nothing. In three months, in two months, really, Grant suffered 60,000 casualties and has removed the Army of Northern Virginia as an open field threat. So he isn't wasting his own men's lives. Uh, He will, in fact, say, of course, that more than once, I think, that uh, even if he had to trade man for man in casualties with the Confederates, they would still lose because the North had, had more men. And Grant is not waging total war on the civilian population of, uh, of Virginia. To the limited extent that that happens, that's out in the West under Sherman. Uh, but I, I can tell you scores of houses that Sherman burned in 1864, oddly enough, are still standing today. There's a 
great deal of mythology about uh, about the extent of the damage that Sherman did. Uh, he cut a swath about 40 miles wide across Georgia and South Carolina, but elsewhere throughout the Deep South, it got through the war virtually untouched. So it, this, this, it's dangerous to use the term total war because we apply our modern understanding of the term to what was being done at that time. But how did the Confederacy cope with it? I think that was your question. It, they, right. they, they did, the, they did the best they could. But especially mm. under Sherman, not not so much under Grant, but Sherman simply r- ravaged the industrial and transportational capacity of the Western Confederacy. And there was no way that there was no way the Confederates could could rebuild industrial plant. Uh, they were having a hard time. It was just keeping their existing railroads running. Uh, they couldn't manufacture new iron uh, rails. They couldn't manufacture new locomotives. They couldn't man- manufacture new weapons uh, manufacturing plants. Uh, everything the Confederates lost, they couldn't replace. The amazing thing to me, and I think to most historians, is that in the face of all that, the Confederacy still managed to last as long as it did. Hmm. Which says a lot about civilian morale and and determination. And I think if, uh, it says something for Jefferson Davis, who was a leader Confederates didn't love or identify with, but I think he, as much as anybody, was responsible for somehow keeping the creaking Confederacy going until the summer of 18, or spring of 1865. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the very end, of course, that they started to realize they should be utilizing black soldiers to compensate for their lack of manpower. Do you think that could have mattered at all? And, um, you know, why did they decide to do it when it was too late? Well, yeah, it certainly, it certainly was too little, too late, uh, which is one of the reasons that many people opposed it. Uh, and it's worth keeping in mind still that the legislation simply called for enlisting and using male slaves that were volunteered by their owners. So this wasn't sort of an open enlistment for all blacks. It was just if a plant planter was willing to loan his slaves to become uh, soldiers, then presumably at the end of their service when the Confederacy achieved its independence, then those slaves would be free. So it's a very limited approach to it. But you know, if you put yourself in the position of any slave in 1865, uh, what point is there in enlisting if being willing to go and maybe get killed when it is so obvious that the Union's winning the war? You're going to be free anyhow in time. Right. It, it helps those slaves were largely kept in ignorance. Slaves didn't know a lot about what was going on in the course of the war, and what they did here was probably very much... Um, very much biased toward presenting a a, a positive viewpoint in order to keep mm-hmm. the slaves uh, uh, docile and to to uh, avoid you know promoting uh, uh, insurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of ways the war is romanticized, um, sort of as having honorable men on both sides, mm-hmm. but uh, the appalling conditions of prisoners prisoners of war were treated on, on, you know, in the North and the South, kind of contradict that. Uh, how could this sort of treatment been allowed to go on? It's ignorance more than anything else. It, it, first of all, keep in mind that at the beginning of the war, no one was prepared for, for, for prisoners. 
no one is really prepared for dealing with the wounded. And uh, no one really had any concept of how long this would go on or how many prisoners they, there would be. And so, as, as I'm sure you already know, the first prisons or prison camps are mostly ersatz things, old warehouses converted into a prison, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Old uh, community fairgrounds in some northern states were turned into prisons. And the story of both sides in the war is of them constantly playing catch-up, trying to deal with this continual influx of prisoners. And then when the prisoner exchange system uh, largely breaks down by 1863, and so they're no longer trading prisoners man for man and sending them home, then the numbers increase dramatically. They know nothing about infectious disease. You know, people at that point, still, even medical men, still believe that fevers are the result of, of miasmic swamps and that uh, very few, they know the causes of very few diseases. They, don't under, they know measles is bad, but they don't know how you get it. Most, a great, well, let me say a great many of the men north and south have not had the simple childhood diseases, measles, mumps, whooping cough, etc., because they came from rural communities where they weren't exposed to a lot of other people with the same thing. And now you've got thousands crowded in to tight compounds, so every germ that's in there goes around. Uh, they don't get they get very little physical health. If nothing's yet really understood about proper nutrition, so uh, dysentery is epidemic in all of them. And no one intentionally is doing this. It's it's just the result of of ignorance. A, a fair bit of learning comes out of the prisoner of war experience, but of course that comes at the expense of the many dead. My own great great grandfather died in a Union prisoner of war camp. Hmm. Oh, just what was called camp disease. Um, <clears throat> so, so it's after the war that these the high deaths get politicized, and of course it's Camp Sumter, which is usually called Andersonville, that's the culprit. But it, where the death rate was terrible among Union prisoners of war, but the death rate was just as bad at Elmira, New York. So hmm. nobody's nobody's intentionally causing all this misery and hardship. It's just the inevitable concomitant of a war in a time of no knowledge mm-hmm. about public health and sure. virtually no medications to treat these things. No, that would be a problem, definitely. Mm-hmm. So there was a a really wonderful documentary series called Civil War Journal that many may have seen you on. Uh, how did you become involved with that, and what are your thoughts on it looking back? Well, let's see, that goes back to the early... 1990s, I think, Uh, I was contacted by the producer of their very first show. Uh, Each each show had a different producer, though overall they were produced by a company called Greystone Communications. And their first one was to be about the first Battle of Bull Run. I was contacted by the producer of that one. And, you know, this is a almost a 30-year-old recollection, so I'm not sure I even remember correctly. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I went out to California to do the interviewing for that one, and as a result of it, they asked me to be the series historical consultant. And they, in fact, would have two, myself and then Brian Pohanka, uh, now deceased, who was um, a real leader in the uh, Civil War reenactment and living history community. 
know so Brian so I kind of was their consultant on who to interview about this and that relating to the historical story and Brian was their technical authority on anything relating to uniforms and weapons and equipment which is stuff that I know very little about mm-hmm. and it just it it uh, was a I became good friends with the Craig Hafner who was the head of Greystone and it just developed into a good relationship they would I'd fly out there oh, every two or three months, <clears throat> spend about four days doing back-to-back interviews. It would be four hours of interviews per show. They'd do two shows a day. So at the end of four days, I was pretty beaten. One, one time I flew out, showed up in the morning, and immediately lost my voice. There's nothing, <laughs> worse, than, nothing worse than a talking head who can't talk. <clears throat> um and I think we, as I recall, we did 52 episodes all told, 52 one-hour episodes. And to be absolutely honest with you, I never saw any of them. I, I've, no. I've never watched any interviews I've done um, on anything, not because I'm disdainful of it. I've just done that, and I'm not. It's too late to correct anything if I did something wrong, so I'm just not that interested in it. But I know they made a, a considerable effort to be uh, authoritative. Uh, authentic and uh, nonpartisan, mm-hmm. and I would say from everything that I have heard from people who have seen it, this is the series that they were successful in that. There were two episodes we filmed that were never broadcast. One was the one dealing with slavery, mm-hmm. and they just decided in the end this was not my decision. This was the producers. Just decided that the subject was still so politicized today and so potentially explosive, even in the 1990s, which were pretty calm in America in race relations, that they just didn't feel that they ought to go ahead and broadcast it. I've forgotten what the other show was. Um, It wasn't something controversial. I think they just decided it wasn't interesting. Mm -hmm. The series had had a good impact. It was originally produced for the Arts and Entertainment Network, which was at that, and their hope was they might get it into 8 million homes. A&E and one of the major networks, a few episodes into it, created the History Channel and then shifted this over to the History Channel. I think it was the History Channel's first major series. And, of course, the History Channel is in something like 40 or 50 million homes now, or maybe more, I don't know. And that series is still an evergreen. It's when I was teaching here at Virginia Tech a few years ago, I'd go into class in the morning and they'd say, we saw you on TV last night, Professor David. So they're still showing those things over and over again. No, I, excuse me. I saw it on reruns on History Channel, too. It was a great series. I mean, they showed it more often, um, but nowadays History Channel doesn't really show programs like that like they did, but it was a great yeah, show. Yeah, they're not, yeah. No. no. But... Uh, Thanks so much for being on. I know you have a, a book that just came out. Um, real quick, what's that one about? Well, see, the most recent one that's out is called Inventing Loretta Velasquez. Is that the one you're thinking of? Oh, the one you just finished, I mean. Oh, well, um, I've finished the work on a book uh, that has not been published and won't be until next year probably well, that okay. deals with the uh, the letters of um, the Confederate General Gabriel Wharton. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. who uh, lived near here, and uh, in an attic in his house, which is still in Radford, Virginia, not far from here, his right. family a few years ago found uh, thousands upon thousands of pieces of his correspondence, including 524 letters between him and his wife from 1863 wow. to 65. And uh, their, well, their, their, their granddaughter and I have co-edited those letters. It's a remarkable set of letters. They're both extremely well-educated. They're both very well-read. They express themselves beautifully. And they're both rather 20th or even 21st century characters. We'll be, we'll be keeping an eye out for that. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was a great talk. And uh, we'll be back soon with more episodes. Uh, if you would like, please follow our Twitter account, at Reagan Worldwide. You can get information about all the new episodes coming out and other interesting facts. So for now, this is A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.